Well, good morning, church. Again, welcome. I'm so glad that we can gather here in this place again today. I know uh, for a lot of us, we get to gather here every week. Thank you, Matt. And for some of you, maybe it's your first time with us, and we want to say again just how grateful we are that you're here and that we get a chance to, uh, to welcome you into this place, into our house, and worship Jesus again together today. And I want to start with this, and, and I don't know if anyone needs to hear this today, but um, it's Christmas. It's a wonderful time of year. At the same time, I know when we gather in this place, there are people who are, who are coming off the mountain today and people who are walking through the valley. And wherever you are, before we even begin today, can I just remind, can I remind you that you are loved by God. And that's really not in my notes today. It's not really a part of the message today. I mean, it's part of every message, but, but I want to begin there today because I feel like maybe somebody needs to hear that word today. That you are. That God knows, God sees, and God cares who you are and what you're going through and what you're walking through. And that's the beautiful part of this Christmas story, that that's what we're coming around, is this idea that God cared so much that he literally came from heaven to earth to walk and to live and to be among us. And I'm glad you're here today because I hope today that maybe, just maybe, you'll hear a word from God, a word of encouragement, a word of hope, this good news that we celebrate of uh, of God's incredible love for you and for me and for all of us. Today, we, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling The Best Christmas Ever. And, and if you were here last week, you heard us talk about this. It's, we're not calling it The Best Christmas Ever because we know something you don't know or because we've got some kind of inside information. We're, we're calling it that because we want to just ask that question every week as we gather in this place. What would make this Christmas the best Christmas ever for you? What would that be? If something could happen, if something could change, what would it be? What could make this Christmas the best Christmas ever for you. And in just a moment, we're going to dive back into the Christmas story. But before we do, I wanted to start with this because I'm having some confusion this Christmas season, trying to decide which AI to go all in with. Anybody having the same struggle? Are you having AI problems? By AI, I mean artificial intelligence, these digital assistants that that have been made available to us. In our family, we've a long time been Apple users. I know not all of you are, and that's okay. No judgment here. But, uh, you know, with Apple, you get Siri, and if you need something, you just say, Hey, Siri. Sorry, some of your devices just lit up. And uh, Siri is going to be ready to answer your question, tell you a joke, check the weather, give you directions, whatever you need. And that's fantastic. And, and we've, you know, enjoyed having Siri in our home. But then last year, my wife Alicia brings home uh, the, the, the Amazon, Amazon Echo Dot. And so now we have Alexa in our kitchen, and and we love Alexa. She's been a great addition to our family. Um, You know, every morning she plays Christmas music for us as we're having breakfast. You know, she can tell us the weather, tell us the scores from the game last night. I'm a little nervous about what happens when Siri finds out that Alexa has moved in, but up to this point, uh, they they don't know. They're, uh, they're, they're, They're oblivious to the fact that we have both of them living in the same home. And then, of course, now there's the new Google Google Home Hub, and, and that's another addition, and there's lots of other additions. But, you know, I'm not sure we can bring a third personality into our home at this point. That would just be a little bit confusing. I think at some point, one of these AIs is going to find out about the other AIs, and they're going to destroy the other AIs and take over the whole world. They'll probably make a movie for it, so just watch. Um, it's going to be crazy. I think, uh, I think this points to another reality in, in our world, in our culture, in our lives today. And it's simply this. We live in a world, don't we? We live in a world of competing kingdoms. We live in a world where there, there are multiple things that are vying for your attention, for your devotion, uh, for, for your time, for your energy, for your money, for everything. And it's this inability that, 
for us to resolve this tension, this tug and pull we feel in our lives that leaves us stressed out, worn out, and burnt out, especially in December. We have this tug and pull, this tension in our lives, and we can't resolve it. We can't figure out how to, how to deal with it. And we have these questions that we just don't have easy answers to. You know, should I, should I stay late at work again tonight, or should I try to get home and have, 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 have dinner with the family? Should we, should we be saving more money for the future, or should we use our money for things that we need right now? Should we give our money to the church, or should we not give it all? Or should we give to other charities and organizations that we believe in? You know, should, we, uh, should, should I spend more time trying to, to climb the corporate ladder and, and, and advance my career and do more and more and make a name for myself? Or should I use the time and the talent and the energies that God has given me to make his name great and his name famous and be content for where he has me in life, but spend all that I have to give all that I am to his name and to his glory and to his fame around the world? You know, should I eat at Whataburger or is it okay to go to In-N-Out? We have these questions, these competing kingdoms in our lives, and we don't know sometimes. How do we resolve it? How, how, do, we, how do we resolve this, this tug and this pull, this tension we have in our lives between the competing kingdoms in our world, the things that are competing for our time, our energy, our resources, our talents? All of these things, they're, they're finite resources. We only have a limited supply, and we can't do everything. So what do we do in a world where everything is competing for us? Where do our allegiances lie? This isn't too much unlike the world into which Jesus was born. In the days of Israel, in the time of Israel, when when Jesus would be born, the people of Israel were living in a world where there were competing kingdoms. On the one hand, you you had Israel, the people of God, the Jewish people, who said that God and God alone, that's our kingdom. It's his kingdom. And our entire lives, all that we have, all that we have within us, all that we have without us, we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's everything that we have inside and all the resources we have outside. All of it belongs to God and to his kingdom. And that was true for some, for for a few. There were others who used that allegiance to God to position themselves over other people so that they could have position and prominence, wealth, and success in their own lives. And so they said with their mouths that God is king and God is Lord and his kingdom is the one that receives our devotion. But the truth was they were the Lord of their own lives. And you could see that in the way they lived and everybody knew it. Then there were other people, just like there are today, who were just living their lives in outright sin, disregard for God. And, and, and everybody knew that, too. It was no secret who was and who wasn't living outside of the will of God, outside of the word of God. And then, and then you had people, because at the time, uh, at this time in the land of Israel, when, when Jesus would be born, there was, once again, an oppressor. There was another nation that had taken over Israel and was oppressing them. And so the Romans had moved into town. And the Romans were the the current day oppressors of the land of Israel. And some people within Israel had given their allegiance to Rome. And they said, we'll serve you. We'll bring our lives up under you if you will give us maybe just a little bit better life than what we're experiencing otherwise. If you'll pat our pocketbooks. If if you'll you'll take care of us, then we'll, we'll take care of you. It was a world of competing kingdoms. 
And it's, in, it's within this context, within this world, that Luke begins to tell the story of the day when things would start to change. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can open up to Luke 1. That's where we're going to be this morning in, in just a moment. It was in this context that Luke tells a story about this girl named Mary who lived in a town called Nazareth. And based on what we know historically and about this, the people and the time and the land and the area, Mary was probably in her early teenage years. She's living at home with her parents in Nazareth, which is in northern Galilee. Nazareth is a no-name town. It's barely a dot on the map. Most people don't even know where it is or that it exists, but it's there. And this is where Mary grows up. And she's engaged to a man named Joseph, which you probably know. Joseph is a little bit older. He's, a, he's an established carpenter in the same town of Nazareth. And it's here in this context with the Roman oppressors, with the religious leaders asserting their authority and power, with people living in disregard for God altogether. And then the, there's always a few who have given their entire devotion to God that Luke tells a story. And so in Luke 1, verse 26, we have these words. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. So Luke begins the story by telling us that this is how it all started. This is how it all happened. Let me tell you how this went down. And by the way, Luke had probably talked to Mary. He'd gotten his information directly from her. And so when Luke tells a story, he's giving you a reliable story that this is how it happened from the mouth of Mary. I was living in Nazareth. I was at home with my parents. I'm engaged to Joseph. And this angel appears to me. And his name is Gabriel. And that's important. Because this isn't the first time that we've heard about Gabriel. In fact, if you rewind the story just a few verses, you find out that Gabriel has already made another appearance. He's made an appearance to a man named Zechariah. And Gabriel has told Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth, even though they're much older in age, even though Elizabeth has been barren her entire life, she's lived in shame because she's been unable in their culture to have a child and that brought her shame. But don't worry. Because God has a plan for you, Zechariah. Gabriel's telling Zechariah this. You're going to have a son. I want you to name him John. And he's going to be the one that goes before God's Messiah because God's Messiah is on the way. Zechariah couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Because of his lack of faith in that moment, God put Zechariah on a silent retreat for the next nine months <laughs> until that baby came. And he believed. But that's not the first time we hear about Gabriel either. If you go back even further in the story, you find out there, there was another time that Gabriel made an appearance. This time, go back to the Old Testament, go back to the book of Daniel, and you find out there's a man named Daniel who, again, is living in the land, but yet he's, they're, they're living under oppression. And so one evening, Daniel, a man of faith, a man of God, is praying to God for mercy. God, have mercy on our people. Lift this oppression from us. And as Daniel is praying in the evening, an angel comes to him. But it's not just any angel. Guess who it is? It's Gabriel. Gabriel comes to Daniel. And Gabriel says, Daniel, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is, the bad news is, is that your suffering is not going to end anytime soon. In fact, your suffering is going to go on for some time. The good news, the good news is that after this time of suffering, God is going to send his anointed one, his Messiah. 
And so when Gabriel comes to Zechariah, when Gabriel comes to Mary, and Gabriel reveals his name, I'm not just any angel. I'm the angel Gabriel. Zechariah knew. Mary knew. They had heard these stories. They had known these stories. They probably taught these stories. At the time that an angel appeared to a man named Daniel when he was praying, and, and Gabriel promised there was a prophecy that the time of suffering would come to an end, and that at that time, the anointed one, the Messiah, would come. And so when, when Zechariah heard this is Gabriel, when Mary heard this is a Gabriel, this was a sign that what Daniel had heard in Daniel chapter 9 was about to come to pass. But that wasn't all. Because Gabriel had come to Mary, who was also engaged to a man named Joseph. And Luke says Joseph was a descendant of King, of King David. Now that sounds awesome. He's a part of the, the royal family. He's a son of David. This is incredible. But the reality is, is that Joseph is a humble carpenter in the no-name town of Nazareth. You know why? Because it's been almost 600 years since any son of David has sat on a throne in Israel. There's been 400 years of silence since anyone has heard from God. It's been 600 years since any king, any son of David has sat as king on the throne in Israel. So even though Mary is engaged to Joseph, who was a descendant of King David, and that is important. The reality is, is they're living very humble lives in Nazareth. And then Gabriel speaks. Gabriel appears to her in verse 28 and says, Greetings. Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. And translators have tried to capture as best they can the beauty of these words, the, the words that, that Gabriel spoke, and they just can't quite get it right in English. And the different translators have it different ways. One says, hell, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Another says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But the, the meaning is the same. Mary, this, this girl in the town of Nazareth, has found favor with God. She's been chosen by God. She has lived her life in such a way that God has looked upon her with favor. And then he says, Gabriel says, the Lord is with you. Now, of course, it's a little bit of a nod, isn't it, to the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. But it's not just that. And I think Mary would have known this, too. That every time in Scripture, every time in Torah, every time in the stories of God in, in, in her Bible... Any time someone heard the words, the Lord is with you, it was always a sign that someone was being called into an important role into the kingdom, into the story of God. And so if you go back and you reread Scripture and you see this over and over again, you'll find out that people like Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and David, every one of them heard the words, the Lord is with you. And then they were given an important task to do in the story of God. So Mary knew when she's hearing the words, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. It wasn't just a nice greeting from the angel Gabriel. It was a calling into the story of God, into an important role, into what God was about to do. Of course, she had no idea what was about to happen. She couldn't have. And you see that because verse 29, confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what in the world the angel could mean. Of course she was confused. 
What's happening? No one's heard from God in 400 years. It's been silence. And now God is coming to me in Nazareth? What? Mary knew the story. She knew the prophecy. She knew that, that one day a Messiah would come. And this is what they had hoped and prayed for for so long. But never in a million years would she have dreamed that she would be called to be the mother of the Messiah. And that's precisely what Gabriel says next. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. For you have found favor with God. There's that word favor again. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. For hundreds of years, this is what Mary and her family and her people had been waiting for, had been praying for, had been hoping for. And now this angel, Gabriel, who had just appeared to Zechariah, who hundreds of years before that appeared to Daniel, this angel who was a minister in the throne room of God, this angel who no doubt had sung the song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Has now left the throne room of heaven to come to her and tell her, the time is now and you are chosen to be the one to carry the Son of God, God's Messiah. And then Gabriel says these words that I think are so important in verse 33. And he, this Son you're going to carry, this Messiah, this anointed one, he will reign over Israel, and his kingdom will never end. Oh, this is it. This is the good news, that Messiah is coming, and he is going to come, and he is going to reign. He is going to sit on the throne of David, and he is going to reign, and his kingdom will never end. This is really what they've been waiting for. This is really what they've been praying for, because they've been living up under oppression for the last six centuries. They've been wanting someone to come and deliver a rescuer, a Messiah, God's anointed one, the one that had been promised and prophesied about to come and deliver them, and now... The angel comes to Mary and says, he's going to come and he's going to reign. But the problem was, is that what Gabriel meant when he said he will reign is probably not what the people wanted when they thought about the one who would come, who would reign. They wanted the Messiah to come and reign. You know what they wanted? You, they wanted what you and I would have wanted. They wanted one to come, a Messiah to come, a deliverer to come and kick the Romans out of Israel to take back their nation as a sovereign nation, for him to establish his kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, to get it all back in order and for them to make things the way they were supposed to be, but to do it the same, the same way it had been done to them. When Rome reigned, when they brought peace into the land, they did it through war and through conquest. And now Israel wanted the Messiah to come and to deliver them through war and conquest, to kick out their oppressors and to bring peace back to their land and for the Messiah to reign forever and ever. This is what they wanted, but it's not what Gabriel had in mind. It's not what God had in mind. Not that kind of reign. Not that kind of peace. And make no mistake about it, Mary and Joseph, they knew. They knew what the peace of Rome was like. According to Josephus, a Jewish historian, it was probably around 4 BCE when uprisings started happening all over Israel. 
little revolts. And it was causing such a problem that Rome had to respond. They had three legions of, of armies up at the border of Syria. And so they sent their armies. They left that border. They sent their legions down into Israel to squelch out any uprisings that were coming up against them. One of those was led by a man named Judas in the city of Sepphoris. Sepphoris was the closest major city to Nazareth, about four miles away from Nazareth. So you could walk there in a couple of hours, no problem. Judas was leading, leading a revolt against Rome. Rome brought in its legions of armies, and you know what they did. They brought peace. You know how they did it? Through violence. Those that can run and hide and escape did, but those who didn't were either killed or captured or wished they were dead. After destroying every person in sight, after tearing down everything they could and burning the rest of the ground, they walked away with the embers behind them, and they said, Pax Romana. This is the peace of Rome. You know what the peace of Rome was? It was to completely destroy anything that might revolt against them. And in that utter and complete devastation and destruction, yeah, there was peace. There was nothing else coming up against them. And for years, under the, the leadership of Octavian, this was the peace of Rome. It was to completely destroy and decimate anything that might come against them, and thereby they had peace in the land. But this wasn't the kind of peace, and this wasn't the kind of reign that Gabriel was announcing. Because Jesus was coming. The Son of God was on the way. The Messiah was about to arrive. But he was going to bring a different kind of peace. He was going to have a different kind of reign. And it was going to be a different kind of kingdom. Mary asked the angel in verse 34, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy. And he will be called the Son of God. And right here, just pause for a minute. Do you see it? Do you see the humility of God? God could have come from heaven to earth any way he wanted. But right here, he chooses to do it through conception, to be conceived, to enter the world by entering the womb. For the God who cannot be contained, to be contained inside the womb of a mother. You know, back when Alicia and I were going through those days of having our children and, you know, we were pregnant. I say we were pregnant. She was pregnant. I was just there beside her. But, um... You know, it was fun because you could look up online, and they have apps now where you can look up, and you can see, like, okay, we're this far along. How big is our baby? And so at week four, you look it up, and sure enough, week four, your, your, your baby is the, the size of a poppy seed, you know? Like, whoa, that's amazing. You know, week 12, your child is the size of a kiwi. Oh, that's exciting, <laughs> you know? And it is, you know? How in the world did God, who we know is larger than the estimated 100 billion galaxies fit inside the womb of Mary. If you've ever wondered if God could come and meet you where you are as you are, remember this. The God that cannot be contained chose 
the light of the world chose to enter the darkness of Mary's womb for nine months to come and to meet us where we are as we are because he loved you and he loved me and he loved us so very much. And then you hear Mary's response in verse 38. She said these words. And you should underline this. You should highlight this. You should circle this. This is, this is Mary as the prototypical disciple. This is Mary as someone who is full of faith. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Mary's response she didn't respond in fear. She didn't object. She didn't hesitate. She didn't ask the angel, hey, Gabriel, is there maybe somebody else who can do this? And you know, Mary knew this was going to be difficult. This was, the road ahead was not going to be easy. There was questions that would have to be answered. How was she going to explain this to her parents or to her friends or, or, or to Joseph? But the road ahead was not clear. What's going to happen next? How am I going to navigate this? To, to be with child before I'm, I'm finally and fully married to Joseph, how am I going to explain this? Am I going to be shamed? Am I going to be divorced or, or something worse? Like, what's going to happen? But Mary responded in this moment with incredible faith. And here's what I want you to see. In this moment, there wasn't a battle for Mary's heart. In this moment, there wasn't a battle for her allegiance. In this moment, there weren't competing kingdoms for her. But because she had already placed her life fully up under the reign of God, now the Son of God was going to come in her and be conceived in her body and move through her for the sake and the hope of the world. Because Mary had lived a life of faithfulness, now in this moment she chooses to be faithful again. And because of her faithful life and because of her faithful decision and obedience in this moment, God is going to do something miraculous in her and through her. There wasn't a battle for Mary's heart in this moment. The God who was about to be conceived inside of her, she had already placed her life totally and completely up under him. There wasn't a battle for Mary's heart in this moment. There weren't competing kingdoms in her life. She was living her life by those words. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In this moment, this was a natural expression of living out the words she had prayed every day. Yes, Lord, all that you've just said, may it be done to me. I'm placing my entire life up under the reign of Christ so that Christ can come reign in me and through me for the sake and the hope of the world. But what about you? See, I think this is where the question for us in the story is today. Is there a battle for your heart? Are you living a life where there's competing kingdoms? Is there a battle for your heart? Are you living a life where maybe part of your life, but not all of your life, is lived up under the lordship of Jesus Christ? You know, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between confessing Jesus is Lord and making Jesus Lord. I looked it up again this week. According to Pew Research, there are about 2.3 billion 
Christians alive on the planet today. Christianity is still the largest major religion in the world. I I don't know if that's true. I don't know what that means. But if it means anything, it means this, that there are approximately 2.3 billion people on the planet who have confessed, yes, we believe Jesus is Lord. We believe he is divine. We believe he is the Son of God. We believe he is who he says he is. We affirm that. We believe that it's one thing to confess, to say that Jesus is Lord. But it's something entirely different, isn't it? To make Jesus Lord. It's something entirely different to place the totality of your life up under the rule and the reign of Christ. It's something else to say, he shall reign over me. I think think to call Jesus Lord, that's an activity of belief. And that is huge. And that is important. And some of you, you've made that confession. Some of you, you're thinking about making that confession. Some of you, you're not sure what to do with Jesus. And you've got to figure that out. But to, to, to call Jesus Lord... That is an activity of belief. It is an activity of faith. But to make Jesus Lord, I really believe that's an activity of discipleship. That's something that we spend the rest of our lives trying to do. To say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. That's different than just saying, I believe you are who you say you are. To to say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my marriage. I want you to be the Lord of my parenting. Guess what, Jesus? Now you're in charge of of my work. You're in charge of what I do as an employer or as an employee. Or Jesus, I want you to be in charge, Lord of my finances, Lord of my future, Lord of all of it. That's a whole different question. It's one thing to say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are, but I think we spend the rest of our lives, those of us who are earnestly trying to seek and follow Christ, to make Jesus the Lord of your life. But in this moment for Mary, there wasn't a battle. There wasn't a question. There wasn't a hesitation. Mary had already placed her life up under the reign of Christ. So now, now absolutely, my life is yours. Whatever you need, I am your servant. All that I am, all that I have, I yield to God. I give my life. We sing the songs, you know, Lord, reign in me. We sing the songs, take my life and let it be. But the practice of putting our lives up under the reign of Christ, this is where the tension lives for you and for me. But here's what I believe God wants you to know today. That the one who reigns over you desperately wants to reign in you. Why? So he can move through you to others. The one who reigns over you, and he does, whether you acknowledge that or not, that's up to you, but the one who reigns over you wants desperately to reign inside you, inside your heart, inside your life, inside every fiber of your being, so that for this purpose, it's not for nothing, so that he can move through you to point others back to him. So that in your life, he can work out things in your life. So that he can be the Lord of your life. So that it will be obvious and evident to all those around you that there is a God. And he is great. And his love is huge. And he wants nothing more. Nothing more than to call you son. To call you daughter. Mary lived her life in faithfulness to God. And then... Gabriel came to her and said, you're favored by God. You're chosen by God. The Lord is with you. And because of her faith in that moment, 
God was able to reign in her and do through her something completely miraculous. The good news is the Savior has come. God isn't calling you to that task. But I believe God wants, the God who reigns over you wants to reign inside you also. His Holy Spirit wants to take up residence in your heart and life. And Jesus wants to be the Lord of every part of your life so that through your life, others can see the love and the mercy and the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. Church, if you would, let's, let's stand together. What would make this Christmas the best Christmas ever? What if it was this? What if this month, what if this week, what if today, if you had to answer this question, what part of my life currently is not under the lordship of Jesus Christ? What if you brought that back under the lordship of Jesus Christ? What if up to this point in your journey as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who is trying to give your life to Christ, if you've, you've allowed him to have, have lordship over a certain part of your lives, but not all of your life, and you, you know that. Like, like God, you, you've got this. I need you here, but I want to keep control of this. Let's bring that back over and put that under the control and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's what happens. It doesn't make everything better, and some of you know that. It doesn't make the pain, the hardship go away. It doesn't make life easier. In fact, sometimes it makes life harder. Ask Mary. The night that Jesus was supposed to be born, they couldn't find a place in the world to stay. It didn't make life better for her. It made life harder in a lot of ways. But it does make life different. And that's our calling, to live different. It makes it different because when the one who reigns over us also reigns in us, it changes everything. Today, I want to ask our elders and their wives once again to make themselves available around the room. And, and if that's where you are today, if, if maybe you know that, man, we're just talking right to you today, you know, that you, you have confessed Jesus as Lord, but the truth is he is not Lord of every part of your life. And that's not his fault. That's your fault. You've got to bring that back up under his lordship. And you want someone to encourage you and pray with you. These men and their wives, they would love nothing more than to pray with you and encourage you as you seek to bring the totality of your life up under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Man, when we sing, I'd love for you to pray with them. For the rest of us, though, this is the challenge this week, this month. Let's practice bringing our lives, all of our lives, those areas that we know are outside the will of God and the ways of God, to bring those back up under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because when you do, it won't just make Christmas the best ever. It's going to change your life going to change your life and you bring your life up under the rule and the reign of Christ. Let's sing.